Uh, almost every year when I was a kid, uh, we'd go down to my Nana Coop and Popsy's house, we called them, for a holiday. It was absolutely brilliant. They lived at uh, St George's Basin uh, down the south coast right up until the day when they passed away, which was some time ago. Uh, they had a little tinny. Uh, they lived right on the water. We'd take the boat out uh, on a regular basis. We'd fish, we'd swim. Uh, it was brilliant. And uh, one of the games I'd play with Nana Coop, her last name was Cooper, so we called her Nana Coop. And uh, one of the games I'd play with her was to try to beat her out of bed in the morning. I had to sleep in her bedroom on uh, my pop's side. And uh, first light, I'd, I'd wake up and I'd see, I'd look over kind of snoring, slumbering pop to see if Nana was there and she was gone every time. Every time she beat me out of bed, she'd sneak out of the bedroom without waking either of us up. She beat me every time. And uh, it must have been a hundred times I played this game and lost a hundred times. She beat me every time. And I'd, um, I'd get dressed quickly and I'd go into the garden and the kind of front garden, the street side, uh, was about half a soccer field in size, uh, not quite as wide, just as long. Um, this huge uh, front veggie garden uh, that they had at their house. It was enormous. They had fruit trees. They had veggie gardens. They had a chicken coop with about 20 chooks in it. Uh, it was fantastic. And I'd go out into the garden uh, with my trackies and my jumper, and I'd be, I'd be looking for Nana Coop. And I'd find her invariably somewhere, and she'd be tending to uh, some of the veggies or she'd be kind of repairing some of the nets for the fruit trees or something to keep the bats out and that kind of thing. She'd be out there uh, somewhere. There was also lots of spiders. Was <laughs> You'd be really careful not to get a spider's web in the face if it was dark. Um, so I'd find her out there. She'd give me a little job to do uh, and I loved it. Now I've got a little quiz today for you. Uh, it's a real quiz. You need to kind of speak out loud. I know it's scary. You'll be okay. Um, to help me, it relates to Nana Coop's veggie garden, all right? So here it is. Now, when she sent me to dust the tomato vine, how do you think I knew which vine was the tomato vine? Yell it out. It had tomatoes on it. Exactly right. Very good. Very good. Um, the vine that bears the tomatoes is the tomato vine. Right, next, next quiz question. When Nana Coop sent me to pick some oranges, how do you think I knew which tree was the orange tree? Orange on it, very good. You guys are good. You guys are, you guys are very good at this. That's right. The, the tree that bears oranges is the orange tree. Now, when she sent me to repair the trellis, last one, when she sent me to repair the trellis for the passion fruit vine... How do you think I knew which vine was the passion fruit vine? Passion fruit's on it. That's right. You're all getting a bit bored of this game. That's fine. <laughs> that means you've got the point. The vine that bears the passion fruits uh, is the passion fruit vine. Okay. Quiz over. Well done. 100%. Uh, now, the biggest town nearby was Huskisson. So if Nana Coop was to send me into Huskisson... Or if she was to send me into Harrington Park, how would I know to find a Christian, right? She sent me to Huskisson or Harrington Park to find a Christian or your local suburb. How would I know that I'd found one? Quiz is over. You don't have to answer this. How would I know that I'd found a Christian? The one who bears the fruit of the Spirit 
He's the Christian. He's the one in the true vine, Jesus, right? Just like the passion fruit vine and the orange tree. The one who bears the fruit of the Spirit is the Christian. So that's how I know I've found one. The person who is a Christian who loves Jesus and lives for him will bear fruit of the Spirit because they have the Spirit within. Now, it probably hasn't escaped your attention that there's a rather large cross uh, on the stage today at the front of church. I brought it over from the hub. Uh, Me and another John built it for Easter last year. And I'm not going to tell you why it's there now, but I am going to tell you why it's there before the end of the sermon. I just wanted to let you know, yes, it's there. We'll get to that. Um, now, as I said, you've got a small piece of paper in your handout. Please have a look at that now and keep it handy. And you mustn't write on it until the appropriate time. Okay. If you want to follow along on your sermon outline, you can. You're allowed to write on that. I'll give you permission to write on your sermon outline. Okay. Now, we've learned from the first four and a half chapters of Galatians that true freedom is found only in Christ, and Ben would have talked about that two weeks ago. Um, Paul reiterates it here in verse 13. We've learned you can't add to or take away from the saving work of Jesus on the cross. If you do, it's not the gospel anymore. And why would you want to take away from the saving work of the cross? Through faith in Jesus' death for us, we're forgiven, we're free from the yoke of obedience to the law. We're free. We're free from sin. We're free from the wages of sin, which is death. What are we as Christians to do now? You six to eight, do they go out? Yes? No? They're staying. Excellent. Okay, good. Lovely to see you. Just checking. Out of routine. Okay. Now that we're freed from sin, uh, what are we to do? What are we to do as Christians? And Paul answers in the second half of verse 13, serve one another. That's what we do now that we're free from sin, free from the wages of sin, free from the yoke of the law. We serve one another. The one who has all they need, the one who's accepted by God in every way imaginable, the one who's blessed beyond imagining by God is freed up in every way now to give to others. The one who's been given all in Jesus is now able to give to others. Freed from the law, we're able to freely obey the law in its entirety. Verse 14 For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Rather than verse 15, which says don't bite and devour one another. Love one another, don't bite and devour one another. Uh, I knew a British man who had quite a believable theory about why deadly creatures exist in Australia in abundance... (laughs) And not in England. A lot of poms are terrified of coming to Australia. It's funny. Um, His theory, which makes a lot of sense, is there's competition for food in Australia because particularly in Outback Australia, it's quite arid and harsh. So there's competition for food. So animals will attack and kill and bite and devour one another to win the food. 
Whereas in England, where there's a lot more rain and it's a lot more lush and all that kind of thing, there's no competition for food. All the animals have got all they need. There's no need to fight. There's no need to bite. There's no need to devour. We've all got lots. Just chill out, guys. Spiders, snakes, lizards. We're all got enough. Just let's relax and enjoy the feasts. Whereas in Australia, they need to bite and devour each other to get the food just to survive. So they learn to attack and to defend, to win the food. Similarly, the Christian who understands they have all they need in Christ sees no need to bite and devour anyone else. No need to attack, no need to defend. I have all I need in Jesus and much, much more. There's no need to compete with others. No need to compare yourself with others. Free to enjoy the abundant wealth we have in Christ and to use that abundant wealth that we have in Christ to love others and to serve others. That's the wonderful beauty of freedom in Christ. Saved by Christ, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, who is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He's our advocate who goes before us to the Father and represents us, and he's our guide leading us into acts of righteousness, into love for others. Paul says in verse 16, So I say to you, who no longer live for yourself, but live for God. Walk by the Spirit. Follow the Spirit's lead. Be Spirit-led fruit bearers in this world. The Spirit of God leads us into obedience and good works, and so as he leads us, follow him. Take his lead in acts of obedience and good deeds. Don't go off the beaten track. Uh, Ray, my eldest son, he's eight. He won an art award with Camden Council last year through his school. Uh, We got to go to the the special plant centre at Mount Annie Botanical Gardens. I can't remember what it's called. Sorry, Plant Bank? I don't know. Um, We went there. The mayor presented him... Uh, with his award, and he was given a, a gift of um, like a veggie garden starter pack, which is really cool. And we got a free tour through Mount Annan Botanical Gardens by night. <clears throat> so we met the guide at dusk, and he took us into he took us off the beaten track into the gardens at night time for a nocturnal tour. It was really cool. Um, we followed him. <laughs> he talked about there's spiders out there, there's snakes, but you don't need to worry about them. Leave them alone, they'll leave you alone. It's all good. Let's go. It's dark. Follow me. We'll do. <laughs> we followed him. We didn't go off the beaten track. He knew the right way to go. We did not. It was dark. We were wise to follow our guide and not go off the beaten track, as is the Christian. Wise to follow the Holy Spirit who leads us, trusting, trust in Him to lead us right, lest we fall into sin and ungodliness as we go off the beaten track. And now it's hard, it's hard to do because there's a conflict, there's a conflict within, there's actually a battle 
within. There's a reality of the Christian life is there's a forever a conflict within us between what Paul calls in Galatians 5 the work of the flesh and the work of the spirit. Look at verse 17. Paul could not be clearer than in verse 17. For the, the, the flesh, the sinful nature, desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. True Christian freedom, you see, is not expressed in continuing to be a slave to the sinful nature. Rather, it's freedom to serve others and live your life in joyful obedience to God. But it's hard, eh? It's really hard. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul struggled with this conflict within. And he talks about it in his famous do I diddy diddy dum diddy do chapter in Romans 7. So if you go back to Romans 7, flick back in your Bibles. Romans 7. What page is it on, anyone? 732? 1132? 1132? Paul's famous talk about his struggle, his conflict. So I'm going to read from verse 14 in chapter 7. We know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate. But what I hate, I do, and I do what I do not want to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that, the, that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. There's this struggle within Paul between his sinful nature And this Holy Spirit, this new law that's at work in his body and his life and his mind, in his mind he wants to do what the Spirit wants him to do, but in his flesh he's just so weak. And we're all the same, right? We're all the same. As Paul, we become Christians and the Holy Spirit moves in and starts working in our hearts, willing us to do what's right. But in our flesh, we end up doing what's wrong, don't we? How is that possible? And what do we do about it? It's just so hard. Well, firstly, take heart. You're in good company with the Apostle Paul there. He struggled too. And what's very important to note is that he struggled and he wrestled. 
He didn't just go, oh, well, I'm just going to sin. He wrestled. He longs to obey Jesus perfectly. But he knows that whilst he remains in this sinful flesh, not yet glorified with his heavenly body, he will struggle. And at least occasionally, if not more, sometimes fall into sin. So how do we win the battle? Against sin and against our flesh. Well, there's one and only, one and only, one and one only way, and that's through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can conquer sin in our flesh, in our mortal bodies. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling those who have handed over their lives to Jesus that this battle can be won. It will never be won in its entirety in this life. It's something we'll struggle with. But as we walk by the Spirit, it's something we'll struggle with less, which is fantastic. Now, can I say at this point, if you don't struggle with sin, if you just live your life your own way and not God's way without giving it a second thought, then you're not a Christian. For the Christian, with the Holy Spirit indwelling, there will always be conflict. There will always be a battle within. We will always hate sin and not want to do it despite the fact that we do. If you're not feeling that conflict within, then you're not a Christian. And you should talk to Jono or a trusted Christian friend about Jesus and the wonderful joy of putting your trust in him. If you do experience a struggle, which I suspect almost everyone, if not all of us do, take heart. You're no longer under the law, Paul says. You're truly free, truly saved, truly forgiven and led by the Holy Spirit. So follow him. Paul then gives us these two catalogues of the two natures at work within us, that we might avoid one and put it to death by the power of the Spirit, and that we might live for the other. The tree's gone. Live for the other. Um, and work hard to display the other in our lives to the glory of God. So he begins with the works of the flesh. Now, if you look in your handouts, I've given you a little bit of work to do. Guys, you got your handouts? Where's your handouts? Come on. Pen handout. There's a fill in the blanks. You've missed out. You should have FOMO. Um, There's a fill in the blanks to do in your handouts. (coughs) Mel's going to donate one. So that's just the kind of lady she is. Um, There's a fill in the blanks to do. So Paul shows us that the work of the flesh basically fall into four categories. You see that in your handouts. There's one of four realms the realm of sex, the realm of religion, the realm of society, the realm of drink. So firstly, the realm of sex. The first fruit of the sinful nature, which Paul describes as obvious. It's obvious when we're committing sin, Paul says. We know when we're doing it. And the first fruit of the sinful nature, 
which the Bible condemns, is sexual immorality. That's your first fill in the blanks. Sexual immorality. Another word would be fornication. Now, that is most certainly sexual intercourse between two unmarried people. Marriage being only allowable by God's design to be between a man and a woman. So outside of the marital union of a male and female, a man and a woman, sexual intercourse is sin. Um, But also, to be, if a married person is, is, is in any way sexually physical or even emotional with a person other than their spouse, that is a sin. To engage intimately in any way physically or emotionally outside of your marriage is sin and rebellion against God. And so the first fruit of the sinful nature that Paul draws attention to is sexual immorality, the wrong use of sexual intimacy. Secondly, impurity. I think he's talking here about that crudeness and intentionally rude behaviour, particularly pertinent to teenage boys, crude joking, telling dirty jokes, enjoying dirty jokes, uh, rude behaviour, crude behaviour, impurity. I'm going to whip through them pretty quick. Um, You could spend a sermon on each easily. But today I'm going to whip through them pretty quick. Debauchery I take to be indulgence in sensual and sexual pleasures, uh, which could include but isn't limited to viewing pornography and also masturbation, that indulgence in sensual behaviour for your own benefit. So these three words, he says right at the end of this catalogue, and the like. So this isn't an exhaustive list, and the like. These three words, sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, are sufficient to show that all sexual offences, whether public or private, whether between the married or the unmarried, whether natural or unnatural, are works of the flesh. They're works of the sinful nature and they're to be avoided. Secondly, the realm of religion. Often when people ask me what I do for a job, I say I'm an Anglican minister and they say, oh, really? And they might say, I'm not really very religious. And... I say, okay, it kind of becomes a confessional when you tell someone you're an Anglican minister. That's weird. Um, And I say, I'm not really religious either. (laughs) They say, what? You're a minister. And I say, yeah, I know. But religion is generally man's attempt to save himself. And organised religion is just a coordinated group of people doing things in order to try and save themselves. Uh, That's religion. As you look across the world's religions, that's almost always invariably the case. People organise together, doing things to try to save themselves. That's idolatry. That's your first I word under religion. Idolatry is depending on anyone or anything other than the one true God, including yourself, depending on anyone or anything, including yourself, other than the one true God for salvation or even for ultimate satisfaction or contentment? Do you depend on the new house or the promotion or the big holiday to be happy in life? 
to be content. Now, I'm not saying would a shiny new house or a promotion or a holiday put a smile on your dial? I'm sure it would. Uh, we love our new house. We have. It's, it's great. It makes us happy. That's okay. I'm saying, are you unable to find satisfaction and contentment in God without some earthly thing? That thing has become an idol. This is sin. And the second religious thing is witchcraft. I won't go into that too much. I'm not aware that witchcraft is a problem in our church. It might be. I've been in a church where it was with a young guy. Um, Suffice to say, the practice of evil and demonic arts is sin. It's to depend on Satan rather than God for salvation. Thirdly, the realm of society. We've got quite a list there. Um, It's written in your Bible there if you're kind of filling in the blanks. Um, It's written down for you when you find it. There's hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Verse 20. So they're all there. I think they're all fairly self-explanatory. Importantly, they've got one thing in common. They're all acts of the person who does not realise what they have in Jesus. They're all acts of the person who doesn't fully grasp what they have in Jesus. As a result, they grasp at power from other people. They need other people rather than just needing Jesus. The one accepted by Christ with Christ as brother and friend and ally has no need to hate or to quarrel or to get angry with others because they have all they need in Jesus. They don't need to want to win this person or defeat this person if they have all they need in Christ. They've got no need to feel jealous or envious of other people because they have everything in Christ. What is there to envy in another if you have everything in Christ? No need to envy. Jesus is the ultimate example of the one with infinite power and wealth at his disposal who used his wealth and power for the benefit of others, always and ever. There isn't that I know of and in never any divisions or factions in our church here at Harrington Park. And there never will be so long as this church submits itself to Christ. As long as you all submit yourself to Jesus humbly, knowing that you're depending on him for forgiveness and then looking to him for strength and knowing who you are in Christ and therefore loving one another, there'll never be any factions or divisions in this church. Isn't that cool? It's really great. The one who recognises God's extraordinary grace to them through Jesus will only and ever seek to love others. It's the source of love. It's grace from God. Okay, fourthly, the realm of drink. Um, alcohol. 
is the final realm of the sinful nature. Alcohol, in any measure, when consumed, um, begins to remove our inhibitions and reduces our ability to control, to control our thoughts, words and actions. And drunkenness removes self-control completely, rendering us incapable of choosing to walk by the Spirit instead of walking by the sinful flesh. So it's bad. And sin. By default, we walk by the sinful nature. It's an act of God in us that means we walk by the Spirit instead. So drunkenness is sin. And I'm not proud to say, I'm not proud to say that I have enough experience with alcohol in my youth to know that you know when you're starting to feel the effects of alcohol. You know when you're starting to feel the effects in yourself. You may still be legally able to drive after the amount of drink that you've had, you may still well and truly be legally able to drive. But you're, you also know that your inclination to sin rather than godliness in actions and words and thoughts begins to increase. Your inclination to sin begins to increase rather than your inclination to godliness the more you drink. It's not forbidden drinking but it does reduce our ability to walk by the Spirit. Drunkenness is certainly out of the question. And drinking underage is out of the question too. Orgies. I'm proud to say, I'm proud to say, I have no experience in this area. (laughs) None. Uh, It's thought that alcohol would always serve as a necessary prelude to remove inhibitions enough that people could engage something so disgusting and despicable uh, as orgies. Hence, Paul puts it in this category of drink. Um, If you don't know what an orgy is, I want you to quietly thank the good Lord and don't worry about it. It's not worth knowing. Now, I hope you all feel terribly uncomfortable and awkward as I talk about all this stuff. I do feel quite awkward and uncomfortable talking about these things. Sin's disgusting, isn't it? It's disgusting. It's loathsome. It's awful. It's icky. It's destructive to our relationships. It's hideous. It's no surprise that it often happens behind closed doors and in darkened rooms where people can't see you doing it. And sometimes you can't even see yourself as you indulge in some fleshly pleasure. We know by nature it's wrong, so we hide. And we think we hide from God. But we don't. Paul warns the Galatians and us that no one who lives willfully, unrepentantly in service of the sinful nature shall have a share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God. 
There's no place in heaven for the willful sinner and the unrepentant sinner. Now, remember that Paul sinned as well. Remember the do I did he did he dum did he do chapter? It's important. Paul sinned, but he wrestled with it and he fought against it. He hated it. He detested it. He can't wait to get his heavenly body when the sinful nature's gone. He worked as hard as he could to eradicate it from his life. And we should too work as hard as we can to eradicate it from our life as followers of Jesus, as heirs of the inheritance. Okay, the fun bit, the easy to talk about bit, is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul has grouped the nine fruits into three groups of three, a triad of triads. Um, Firstly, fruit that's Godward, and then secondly, fruit that's other person would, and then thirdly, fruit that's kind of inward or self-would, not selfish, self-would. So firstly, towards God, love, joy, peace. We sang about it. It was fun. Love, joy, peace. They're all general virtues of the Christian, but at the heart, they're all Godward in their attitude, or should be Godward in their attitude. The Christian's first and by far greatest love is their love for God. Not their love for the West Tigers, thankfully. They're pathetic. Not their love for mountain biking or their love for car racing or for exercising or for coffee, not for church, not for your kids, not for your spouse, for God. That's the Christian's first love, the greatest love of all, to quote Whitney Houston from 1985. For a Christian, is their love of God. We long to know him, long to understand him more fully, to please him more and more each day. We're devoted to hearing him speak through his word and speak to him through prayer as children of him, as children of God. And then springing forth from this great devotion to God, this love of God, is an inexplicable joy, unexplainable joy an unshakable confidence in any and every situation in life, not an arrogance, a confidence, a joy because of your heartfelt relationship with your God in heaven. There's genius in the banana being joy. Because when you smile, you can have joy. But if you turn the banana upside down, it's a sad face. You can still have joy. The banana's genius. Whether you're happy or sad... You can have joy because you know you're loved by God and you're safe with God. I read of a young mum locked in a shipping container in Eritrea for three years, experienced freezing cold and scorching heat and talked of her joy in knowing Jesus. Real joy because of her relationship with God through Jesus. And that kind of joy brings peace. Firstly, peace is the lack of conflict between you and God anymore. There's no conflict between you and God. It's resolved through Jesus. You're brought into right relationship with him at a profound level as your 
included in the Godhead with Jesus. And you know peace as you work out your relationship with God daily. You have a peace of mind and a peace of heart as you're constantly reminded who you are in Christ. There's peace. And that peace is kind of, when you meet a person who really understands they're safe in God, they're loved by him, no matter what, no matter the mistakes they've made, it's kind of infectious. It oozes out that peace. We're terribly uptight, Sydney siders. Very uptight. We're stressed, busy all the time. I am. We have outrageous wealth with outrageous choice and options, and I think we're just anxious constantly. Know that you are loved by God, forgiven and safe because of Jesus. Remind yourself on a daily basis through Bible reading and prayer and then you'll know peace, true peace. Secondly, towards others, the fruit of the Spirit is towards others. Patience, kindness and goodness is toward others. These were qualities of Jesus, were they not? He spent his days teaching Patiently, for days, he would teach. He had 12 apostles who were terribly thick and slow on the uptake, and he was very patient with them, explained things again and again. He was good to them, only and ever good to them, seeking the best for them in every situation. Let me ask you this. If ever you're church shopping one day, and I pray you're not ever again, um, but if you are, church shopping one day, what we look for in a church. Come to our church, the music is awesome, the chairs are really comfortable and the coffee is amazing. Come to our church, the teaching's first class, the Bible study groups are just as good. Come to our church, every member is like Jesus. Everyone's patient, kind and good. What church do you want to go to? I'll take the garbage coffee for the loving people any day who are good, who are kind, who are patient with one another and with me when I arrive. Men, how are you going at patience? Patience with the lazy and the loudmouth at work. Patience with your children, especially your eldest. How's it going? Ladies, how are you going at kindness? I'm not saying this at the exclusion of the other. Men need to be kind, women need to be patient. Ladies, how are you going at kindness? Kindness to other women in your social circles who you don't click with particularly well, who aren't your best friends. Kindness to the men in your life, your husbands and brothers and sons. When Lara says kind things to me, my wife, when she says kind things to me, men, we try to be tough and we need to be tough. We need to lead, be the example. But I crumble when Lara's kind (laughs) to me. When she says kind words, it's so encouraging. And so, upbuilding, kindness. 
Goodness is the desire to do what's right at all times, no matter what. Do the good thing. What's the thing that Jesus would do? Do that at all times, no matter what. And perhaps I should angle the revision mirror in my car so it's pointing right at me, so I can have a good hard look at myself when I'm driving. I'm not always good when I'm driving, and that's bad. Goodness is doing the right thing at all times. The thing that Jesus would do, and doing it when no one's looking as well. Thirdly, towards myself, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sounds funny that gentleness is, is kind of inward. I think it's, it's, a, it's a way of being, is being gentle, be faithful, have self-control. Faithfulness is a choice to do what you said you would do. Pretty, pretty simple, isn't it? It includes your commitment to God not to sin. I said I wouldn't and I won't, knowing that he sees what you're doing when no one else is looking. And faithfulness is a way of being around others. You know those people in your life that they're, they're faithful, they're trustworthy, they're reliable, you just know who they are? We should all be like that as Christians, trustworthy, reliable, there, committed. Committed to one another. Committed to your church, reliable. You know they're there. You know they're there every week. They're faithful. People who can be trusted not to gossip with sensitive information. Faithfulness. Trusted to do something they said they would do for you. Jesus came. He promised he'd face the wrath of his father on the cross. He told his disciples it was going to happen. And then faithfully he went to the cross on our behalf. Gentleness. Gentleness, man, is not weakness or timidity. Uh, Jesus was gentle, but he wasn't timid or weak, obviously. Um, Guys, Gavin, be gentle with the ladies in your life, with your wives, with your sisters and mothers and daughters. Be gentle. Be gentle with your children, everyone, even after they've grown up. Be gentle. And finally, self-control, which we've touched on. The ability and the conscious decision to do what's right. To stop eating the lollies, because mum said not to eat the lollies. To be tempted to sin and not sin. Self-control. What a beautiful thing it is when a person and when a whole church certainly walks in step with the Spirit and displays the fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian can say, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self and I long to do it every day for Jesus' sake, that he might be glorified in my flesh and in those around me who see me. I long to bring glory to Jesus with my thoughts and with my words and with my actions I long that my thoughts are captive to the Holy Spirit, my tongue tamed by the Holy Spirit, my actions in honour of what Jesus did for me. So to conclude, there's two things to be done. Firstly, we must crucify the flesh. And secondly, we must walk by the Spirit. So firstly... 
We must crucify the flesh. We must put to death sin in our bodies. As Jesus carried his cross up to Calvary, was mounted upon it and died, so we metaphorically put our old self on our back, fireman style, fireman carry style, you know, I wish Dave was here, he's not, he's probably at work, carrying people. Um, Fireman carry style, people on our back, ourselves on our back, and we carry ourselves up to the cross and we nail our old self to the cross, our old sinful self. And our old sinful self dies. And we now live by the Spirit. You have a small piece of paper in your handout, so you can grab it now. This is just between you and God. Grab a pen. You might have to share a pen. This is for you to do one of two things. One, to confess a sin in your life to God. Write it down, what that sin is that you're comfortable to write down. That sin you need to repent of and you need to put to death. Write it down and fold it up so no one can see. And what I wanted to do, but we haven't got time for it, what I wanted to do is offer people to come forward and nail sins to the cross, literally nail our sins to the cross. It's not going to happen. I haven't got time. But in your mind, you can imagine the cross is there. You can write down several sins if you want. If there's a couple of things you're struggling with, you know you need to repent of, write them down, fold it up. Imagine nailing it to the cross. Instead, take it home and tear it up and throw it in the bin, the sin you want to be rid of in your life. Nail it to the cross in your heart and in your mind and leave it there. The death of a crucified victim was painful and slow and definite. The death of sin in your life will be painful and slow, but it must be definite. Nail it to the cross and leave it there to die its death. And when Satan taps you on the shoulder and tempts you to commit that sin again, say, no, it's nailed to the cross. It's dying. And it's staying Crucify sin in your sinful nature, in your flesh. Lastly, walk by the Spirit. It's a conscious decision. The Holy Spirit dwells in our heart. He's our advocate and our guide. But we must choose afresh daily to follow him, to take his lead, to not go off the beaten track. He takes the initiative He asserts his will against the will of our sinful nature and we must yield our will to his direction and to his control. To walk by the Spirit is a deliberate act and you will see it in the movies you choose to watch, in the books you choose to read, in the posts you choose to make on Facebook, 
and in the friends, the people you choose to be friends with, you'll see whether you're making that decision or not. A disciplined practice of prayer and Bible reading is necessary, necessary. You must do it. You must eat, you must drink water, you must breathe, you must have a disciplined practice of prayer and Bible reading in your life that will fan your desire to walk in the way of the Spirit into flame. Not having a disciplined practice of prayer and Bible reading in your life will throw a bucket of cold water on your desire to walk by the Spirit. I'm going to pray because it's hard and we need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit. So please join me in thanking God that we have the Holy Spirit and giving us the strength to follow him. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit within us, producing his fruit within us. Lord, give us the will the desire, the strong desire to put the acts of the flesh to death, to nail them to the cross, to leave them there, to die, to not commit those sins anymore. God, thank you for the sins which I and the people in this room have conquered. Thank you for the sins that people used to commit and they don't commit anymore because they're following Jesus and they're walking by the Spirit. And we pray for those who have sin in their lives, they know they repeat and they know they shouldn't, that you'll help them to put that to death and then give them the strength and the courage to walk by the Spirit. We thank you for the great reality and truth that through faith in Jesus we're saved. We have no needs. All our needs are met in him. So help us to love others. Love our neighbours, whoever that might be, wherever space we're in. Help us to love others knowing we're loved by you. Help us to bear the fruit of the Spirit only and the fruit of the sinful nature no more. In Jesus' name, amen.